But let's also not forget that these countries want to be part of NATO because I guess living under the Soviet Union and Russia kind of sucks, it sounds like. <laughs> and so they want to not be, you know, invaded by those countries. So obviously they they run to to NATO, which is essentially going to guarantee their security. This is the Orientalist Express podcast, episode 36. This is the show that brings together young professionals from all over the world to discuss American foreign policy, international relations, and the importance of U.S. engagement in the world. The goal of this podcast is to make American foreign policy interesting and easy to understand for those who don't follow it too closely. I'm Nicholas Hayen, founder of the Orientalist Express site and president of the board of directors for the Minnesota International NGO Network. I also work as the Marketing and Communications Manager for Global Minnesota, a nonprofit that works to advance international understanding and engagement throughout Minnesota. And finally, I serve on the Minnesota Advisory Committee for the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, which is an advocacy organization dedicated to promoting the importance of American global engagement in international relations. And I'm joined today in the virtual studio by podcast co-founder, Stephen Howard. Hey, everyone. How are you? All right. Tell us a bit about yourself, Stephen. Uh, I guess I hail from Texas originally, uh, graduated from SDSU a little while back in political science. I kind of focused on international relations and specified in Middle East politics. That's really where I enjoy paying attention is Middle East politics. From that, I've paid a lot of attention over the past couple of years to stuff like the um, JCPOA or Joint Plan, uh, Comprehensive Plan of Action, which was also known as the Iran deal. Things like the Syrian war, to a smaller extent, a little bit of what was happening, uh, the kind of the civil unrest in Lebanon. I've also obviously contributed to the Orientalist Express, uh, wrote and written a couple articles. Uh, Definitely go check those out and see if they were uh, prescient as to what happened. Speaking of which, so a lot has changed since our last episode on the initial Russian invasion of Ukraine. The war shifted mostly to the eastern regions known as the Donbass, while the NATO alliance appears newly rejuvenated following a really big summit that happened last month in Madrid. Now, NATO, of course, is um, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and it's a major military alliance among 30, soon to be 32, nations throughout North America and Europe, and Turkey's thrown in there as well. (laughs) This was formed after the Allied victory of the Second World War, and it was meant to serve as a direct counter to the expansion of the Soviet Union. And even after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s, this alliance continued and even expanded uh, because many of those former Soviet nations wanted protection from Russia. Now, NATO is strictly a defensive alliance, meaning that there's no real mechanism for these nations to start invading other countries without being attacked first. So a key component of NATO is Article 5, which is the part of the treaty that states that an attack on any NATO nation is an attack on all of them, and it requires all member nations to defend whoever is being attacked. So over the years, there's been some serious questions that have been raised about whether the alliance is still relevant. You know, the Soviet Union fell apart, so is there really a need for it anymore? But Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine has suddenly and irreversibly changed that conversation. You know, recall that part of the reason for Russia's invasion of Ukraine was its attempts to join the European Union and the NATO alliance. So ironically, Putin's invasion has dramatically revitalized the alliance and caused it to expand even further along the border of Russia. So at this latest summit, 
NATO has not only regained its importance as the guardian of Europe against Russian aggression, as it would say, it's also on track to expand this membership with two powerful and strategically critical countries, Sweden and Finland. So I suppose, Stephen, let's start there by just talking about the addition of Sweden and Finland. You know, what what do you think that means for the future of Europe and for NATO? That's a huge game changer. A lot of what was uh, kind of happening was uh, NATO increasing out to the east. Uh, a lot of former Soviet countries or former, I shouldn't say former Soviet countries, former con- or countries that were formerly occupied by the Soviet Union were mm-hmm. looking for some security guarantees. Uh, Finland uh, and Sweden they didn't feel too much uh, at this point in time necessarily threatened by Russia, um, specifically Finland, who had fought a couple wars with the Soviet Union. Basically, Finland whooped uh, the Soviet Union. Um, but the Soviets did get like 10% of their territory. Sure. So they did come away with something, but yeah, it, they, they expected, kind of like Ukraine, they expected to just roll yes. in and take the whole thing. And it uh, turns out they put up quite a fight especially in the heavily forested areas of, you know, Finland, which there's a lot of. And there's a lot of border with uh, Finland and the former Soviet Union, now Russia. But they were always there was basically a tacit agreement that after uh, World War II, uh, Finland would not join, not fall in line with the Soviet Union. They wouldn't fall in line with the West. They would be kind of a neutral country. And that is where both Finland and Sweden kind of stayed for a very long time was these neutral countries that uh, they don't have massive militaries. Uh, they have, I would say, a fairly, especially Sweden or Finland, outsized strategic importance just due to the amount of border they have with Russia, mm-hmm. but not, I guess, massive military presence. And yeah, they, not huge in size, but but pretty sophisticated. I mean, they're they're pretty highly advanced. They're just not terribly big sure and it, it, a lot of it comes from where their positioning is like the like i said the border with finland and uh sweden you have the northern approaches that are uh kind of cut off if sweden uh, is able to kind of deploy any uh missiles or bombers out there using bases for the longest time these had been neutral uh and that wasn't going to change that was kind of a given of political science of international relations where those countries were neutral it's like when you think of switzerland switzerland is neutral across all wars whatever they happen to be it's a neutral country until you get back into the what 16 1500s this changed with the invasion of ukraine and Finland and Sweden seeing that they had no guarantees uh, that Russia would be a rational actor on their border. No guarantees that Russia was going to pursue its own national interest in a way that didn't harm others. And that's where they kind of realized this this isn't a short-term thing. Joining NATO is not a short-term thing. They made a long-term strategic decision that throwing their pot in with... uh, the militaries of the uh, NATO and being summonable by what, like Nick said, Article 5 of NATO is a a better situation to be in than having to uh, face Russia alone like what happened to Ukraine. Yeah, and, and that's the key thing, isn't it, is countries that are not in NATO or perceive themselves to be at risk. Countries within NATO, I guess they could still be at risk, but they also know that that commitment truly is going to stand. I mean, there's there's a reason why the United States has not committed troops to Ukraine, but is fully ready and willing to commit troops to all the other NATO countries. And that is because of that Article 5. 
And that's also why uh, Russia is so aggressive about NATO, ex NATO expansion. When I say aggressive, aggressively against it. So mm -hmm. you had back in 2008, Georgia thinking about just saying, we might think about joining NATO. Immediately, Russia decides to invade the uh, South uh, Ossetia and kind of try to take as much land as it can. Because once you're in NATO, you're it's kind of like that nuclear paradox. You're not going to invade at that point, because although... Although Poland or whoever might not have nuclear weapons, there, there are a lot of NATO countries that do have nuclear weapons. And once you invoke Article 5, you are at war with those same countries. And so you are talking about that extending that nuclear umbrella to all these different countries, and to an extent also a sophisticated military umbrella. And that makes them basically uninvadable by Russia. I think that was also the big thing, is everyone just so grandiosely overestimated Russia's power. I think if we especially see now that, you know, one, the military is not quite what we thought it was, at least certainly not in that particular type of invasion. They are somewhat holding their own in the eastern part right now. But again, keep in mind that the NATO alliance is massively bigger, both in terms of military capabilities, personnel, and of course, just technology. Um, so it would not be a very... It would be a very lopsided fight. I think Russia, of course, could put up still some stiff resistance. But, I mean, if if NATO actually truly wanted to commit everything it had to it, um, I don't think an invasion of an actual NATO country would, would last very long. But I think it's important to point out that what makes this so strategically helpful is, well, one, with the addition of Sweden and Finland, it turns the, the Baltic Sea into a NATO lake, as people are saying these days, um, minus, of course, that little kaliningrad section of russia but um that would be pretty pretty isolated at that point um but then it also of course expands that border it basically doubles the border between nato countries and and russia just with finland alone it's like what 700 some oh yeah kilometers i believe um and strategically it's really important for backing up the baltic states as well because you know keep in mind like if you look at the map estonia latvia lithuania are kind of right there on the edge along the Baltic Sea, pretty much surrounded mostly by Russia, um, but connecting you know to Poland as well. But if Russia were to just roll in and start invading right from you know from east to west like that, that could really cut off pretty much all of the Baltics. But now with Finland up there in the north, if some type of invasion were to happen, they could swoop in from the north. And actually, they're pretty much within easy striking distance of St. Petersburg right oh. along the way. So there's a lot of reasons now why Russia would not want to try to to invade the Baltic states, because now the costs of that have grown significantly higher. And you've seen actually the uh, prime ministers and presidents of uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania taking a harsher stance on Russia from that as well. Lithuania being the primary one, just closing its borders mm -hmm. to supplies or military supplies, certain supplies, I should say, going to Kaliningrad. And again, that makes the addition of Sweden, Finland so much more important because, as Nick said, it makes the entire Baltic into a NATO lake. And that means that getting those supplies in there via land is impossible. Via air is impossible. Via water, you have to pass Denmark and Sweden in the kind of the Straits of Copenhagen. That could also be very close to impossible. It's... Uh, and. Russia's very, very touchy about Kaliningrad, as you would be, 
Um, but they have nuclear yeah. weapons there. It's I don't think officially um, recognized that they have nuclear weapons in Kaliningrad, but we're pretty sure they have nukes in Kaliningrad. And it just uh, it's another, uh, I guess, pressure point for Russia to put on NATO, which is something that they've always been very kind of touchy about. If you, for instance, if uh, we increased the air defense in Poland, they would be very mm. upset by that because they couldn't they didn't have the deterrence that they had they thought they had from their nuclear arms and this is i would assume to their mind uh be hurting their deterrence as well one would think that well and of course the entire point of this alliance is deterrence to just stop anyone from wanting to try to attack in the first place and one would think that this inclusion of finland and sweden does um you know help to expand that deterrence effect because you people can can point to russia's statements all they want and say oh, well, you know, it's the expansion of NATO that really caused all this hmm. Russian aggression. Well, no, because that's like, one, why are you taking what Russia's saying at face value? They clearly are not um, honorable or honest in any stretch of the imagination. But let's also not forget that these countries want to be part of NATO because I guess living under the Soviet Union and Russia kind of sucks, it sounds like. <laughs> and so they want to not be, you know, invaded by those countries. So... Obviously, they they run to to NATO, which is essentially going to guarantee their security. And it's it's interesting that um, you know throughout this whole time, Finland and Sweden have been, as you said, neutral on paper, but they're also doing everything they can in these years up to this decision to prepare to be a part of NATO if they ever needed to be. I mean, weren't they doing like joint defense drills? They standardized their military equipment to fit right into NATO's standards. So all they had to do when the time came, which it had, is just say, all right, we're going to sign on the dotted line. We're basically ready with everything else. Sure. And I think it was like in December that uh, Finland just finalized the purchase of uh, F... Oh, was it F-22 Lightnings? I don't remember what the Lightnings F number is, but... Uh, fi- <laughs> One of the uh, Fs. Yeah, exactly. Lightning uh, fighter aircraft from the United States over a similar proposal from the EU, I believe, might have been France. Um, but like you said, standardizing their equipment mostly with Western... Co- or I shouldn't say Western countries, with NATO countries. Yeah, and I think that's obviously proved to be a very, um, a very smart move a very forward-looking move on their part. When we're talking about, or when you brought up the point about so many, and it's particularly a single school of international relations, believing that it is NATO expansion which caused the Russians to be so aggressive in um, trying to invade other countries, that doesn't always hold up. And it is, uh, there are a lot of points where it does. Like, obviously, Georgia. Georgia says they're going to seek NATO expansion, so Russia invades Georgia. Now, mm. the big problem there is, is Russia invading Georgia to prevent their NATO expansion because they fear NATO expanding over there, or they fear the loss of Georgia from their sphere of influence mm. and what they believe their sphere of influence should be. And yeah. I would say a lot of the people who believe that NATO expansion caused Russia's revanchism, um are are really trying to take their political philosophy too hard in hand and maybe not accepting that Russian aggression is due to a misplaced notion of Russian power and Russian spheres of influence and that Russia is a great power again around yeah. the world. 
Uh, it's it's not because they fear NATO. They fear NATO taking away what they think of as their sphere of influence. Yeah. And we saw that with Ukraine, you know, the moment that Ukraine started to, to pull away, that's when, you know, Russia invaded. And of course, that entire line of thought is, um, it blames the victim. Yes. You know, it. Georgia says, hey, I want to be part of NATO. And then, you know, Russia invades. And then these people go, how dare you? You you brought their wrath by wanting to join NATO. It's like, yeah, there's obviously a reason why they wanted to. And it clearly was a good reason. Yep. Um, so don't blame them for wanting to seek protection. And I think that a lot of the uh, threats against the Baltic countries as well, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, that Russia has made since this uh, entire thing started, it just echoes that it's uh, Russia doesn't look at these countries as free countries. They look at them as more of Russian provinces. And that's mm-hmm. not something that any policymaker, regardless of their political persuasion, should accept. The deterrence effect is certainly there, um, especially now that... Out of, so out of that summit also came the um, announcements of, of course, more U.S. troops um, going to Eastern Europe. And I believe the NATO is expanding its entire readiness, you know, troops on ready alert to somewhere in the neighborhood of like 300,000 people. I guess kind of what are your thoughts on how does this move balance, you know, wanting to, of course, deter Russia without um, pushing them too far, I guess? You know, I'm actually really conflicted and it's not so much for the Russia aspect of it. It's more for the aspect that we have so many of these countries in the um, in NATO stepping up and saying we are going to recommit to our, what was it, uh, 2% or 3% GDP goal that they have mm-hmm. to spend on military, which, by the way, I think there were two countries that met that, and that is Poland, and I don't remember who the second one is, but it's not Germany, it's not France, it's not the major NATO members besides the United States and Poland. And mm. they are recommitting... Although Germany did say that they would increase Yeah, this, they're recommitting but... to it, which is nice, as long as they do it. Yeah. But in that frame, should the United States really be committing, recommitting so many troops to the Western Europe when these countries are recommitting to their military budgets as well? And my issue there is that these countries do have a free rider problem. A lot of NATO countries have a free rider problem where they take for granted that the United States will put troops on their ground and kind of let it sit there. Sure, we get basing agreements and we get uh, subsidies for our bases, and that's really nice. But it means that Germany, France, Italy, other countries don't have to contribute to their military budget to the same extent that we do. And that's something that I... I want to keep pushing them. I, if I was a policymaker, if I was in the Congress, or if I was in Senate, if I was, I was in Congress, I would be going, this is a great thing. I want Germany to be producing more leopard tanks. I want France to be producing more artillery. I, I want this to be happening. And I don't want the United States troops to be over there, and or U.S. troops to be more stationed on the west, so they go, oh, all right, all right, the United States has this. We don't really need mm-hmm. to push our stuff up anymore. And this is going to come back to a point I'm going to bring about kind of domestic spending. And that's why I see this as such an issue. Yeah, I think it's definitely a point to to bring up. It's it's hard, though, because what's the alternative short of like saying, OK, if you don't like it, we'll leave. And that's extremely destabilizing. Sure. Um, it's certainly the type of thing that, you know, you you could get away with hinting behind the scenes. Um, I think 
part of the reason why um, the previous administration got in such hot water is hmm. because they just openly said it to the entire world, uh, which was very concerning to pretty much every NATO member. You know, that's the kind of thing that you say, um, you know, to someone in confidence in secret. You don't just start blasting out to the world that pay up or you're going to or we're going to leave you. Sure. I, I, I there I do not defend the Trump on very many issues on the Trump administration on very many issues. This is one where I don't know what else the U.S. really could have done. Um because the U.S. Mm. had been signaling for years that these countries needed to step up their domestic spending on military weapons. And they're just, oh, yeah, 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 uh-huh, sure, well, we'll definitely do it, uh-huh. And when you say something in public, people tend to think you mean it. And so that's what the mm. Trump administration did. But to that effect as well, it didn't have any benefits. Um, to the only extent, <sighs> the only thing it did is Angela Merkel said, Maybe we shouldn't be such a Western country or uh, such a NATO country. Maybe we should be looking at a balance of powers between the EU, China, and the United States. And that was, that's not the way to go. Boy, that's like about the exact opposite of what they wanted yes. to, to accomplish with that. Well, so. and it took a Russian invasion of a small country after failed diplomacy by Macron, failed diplomacy by... Um, Angela Merkel as well, and the Nord Stream project. Well, I'm not sure diplomacy was ever going to solve that. Oh, but they did, and that's the problem. They very strongly did. Macron thought he was going to roll in there and just save the entire day by talking to him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, they, they believed that, sure. But, um, I mean, just looking at the way Putin's been acting, I don't think that, you know, this isn't about diplomacy. This isn't about a peaceful settlement. This was about taking Ukraine, full stop. Sure. So, and I agree with you on that, but there were a lot of Western countries who didn't. And this is the thing that had oh, to yeah. show them, no, diplomacy and talking to people will only get you so far. And it is nice that you have been such a talkative continent after being such a armed <laughs> continent for such a long time. But maybe yeah. you need to find a balance. And this is the thing that told them, you need to find that balance. You can't just keep going the way you are and it's unfortunate that it took a an invasion and a humanitarian atrocity of a country to really get that across their minds and that's that's one of my takeaways though is that i like that the united states is recommitting to international diplomacy multilateral diplomacy and getting things done with partners that is a ma major thing that the united states needed to get better at after the trump administration I am not entirely convinced that our partners in Europe, uh, besides the ones that are directly threatened in Eastern Europe, are going to take this as seriously as they need to uh, due to the deployment of U.S. troops and them thinking that, ah, Poland's got this. Ah, they're just killing Ukrainians. Ah, they're just... The United States will send them the weapons. I, They need to take this seriously. And I don't know any other way at this point of them taking it seriously than them feeling threatened. I'm not sure that um, taking U.S. forces out of the equation is necessarily going to help that for some of them, because especially the ones on the on the Western side of Europe, like the threat is from the East and the further away from the East you are, you know, they're going to look at it and go, yeah, well, they'd have to get through Poland first. They'd have to get through Germany first. You know, sure. like, if the war got to that point, uh, something's gone terribly, terribly wrong. And, you know, I'm not sure that U.S. troops is... It, it does it does do what you're saying, you know. It does certainly provide them with that sense of comfort where they think, 
oh, we don't need to to hold up our end of the deal as much. But um, I, f- I feel like they might end up doing that anyway, just by proximity. Location. I hope so. I, I really do hope so. And uh, if any any <laughs> foreign minister is out there listening to this for whatever reason, please keep just uh, hit that two percent, three percent mark, please. It would help out the world so much. And speaking as here, I'll bring it back to domestic uh, spending for you. You know, it uh, certainly helps us to have a little bit of an easier time to, you know, use it, have our own domestic spending because um, we want nice things in the United States, too. <laughs> and y'all in Europe, you get a lot of nice things. We'd like to have some of those. That would be nice. Yeah. Healthcare, you know. Of course, that gets into the whole conversation of like, we can and should do both. But it's easier when we don't have to, you know, foot the entire bill for Europe if they can pay their. When well, I would say that kind of leveraging into a conversation we will have as well uh, in a little bit, one of the things that I'd like a lot of NATO members to think about is the fact that Europe doesn't have a large military presence in Asia, although France thinks that it should. Mm-hmm. Um, they do not. Uh, yeah, France. That ship <laughs> sailed um, that, a long. That time submarine ago. sailed a long time ago. And then, and then <laughs> to bring it back full circle, then America got right? involved, and that was a whole deal. But what the United States is need, is going to need to do is kind of focus on um, the Asian area because a lot of the inflation driven in all Western countries right now, every single NATO country, every single EU country is due to supply shortages supply shortages and just uh increased demand massively increased demand it's not just military spending and one of the things they need to think about is in a world where china kind of dominates the east asian sphere and they rely on more of a mercantilist uh not a free trade but mercantilist you do this for me i do this for you quid pro quo economic system how much of those resources from East Asia are really going to be available around the rest of the world unless you, uh, I don't want to use any uh, different phrase. There are phrases you can say, but bow down to China. Um, hmm. This is something where for their own long-term economic interest, not just even the United States economic interest, but their own, they need to recommit to uh, kind of taking care of the Russia problem, ca- taking a little bit more of aggressive stance there. So the United States can focus on freedom of seas, especially in East Asia, where there are microprocessors. You're talking a massive amount of natural resources. You're talking Vietnam, um, India. Uh, that is an area where the United States has to redirect its military and uh, political, I guess, focus. It's in the best interest of NATO to let the United States do that. Well, let's pivot to Asia then. <laughs> um, just like what NATO is apparently trying to do in in the summit. Um, so in that, so in their strategic concept. Um, that NATO released and they do the strategic concept every like roughly 10 years or so and it's supposed to lay out the next 10 years of um, of NATO's kind of grand strategy vision in this latest one which um, of course is 12 years removed because you know COVID and various things I assume 
um, there's actually quite a bit of mention of China and specifically um, refocusing the alliance, of course, on the short-term issues of Russia, but really refocusing it to the long-term issues that the rise of China poses, both in just traditional economics, as you mentioned, and cybersecurity and mm -hmm. space, um, because, you know, space is, like it or not, space is becoming militarized. Um, we can debate whether or not it should, it probably shouldn't, but it is. And there's just not much to be done other than, again, provide deterrence and hopefully stop it from, if it becomes militarized, hope stop anyone from firing a shot. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really the big focus. And I think it was, you know, I think it was very refreshing that the Alliance um, focused so much on on recognizing that this is the long-term strategic problem for the NATO alliance, even if not necessarily in a strict military sense, because like, yeah, China's not going to go in and invade, you know, NATO. That would be, that would be kind of ridiculous and obviously a really bad idea. Um, but they can do so much more to undermine NATO and all of the countries within it, just as it's done, you know, throughout the entire world undermining um, this U.S.-led order that is based on rules and cooperation and not, you know, invading each other like that. Um, so I think it was very refreshing to to see that. And actually what was interesting is um, the other countries that were invited to this summit or that, that attended, I believe it was Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and South Korea, I believe. Um, and many of those are members of the Quad Alliance, you know, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, which is, of course, the big new, the new hot thing um, focused on countering China, consisting of the United States, uh, Japan, Australia, and India. Um, of course, India kind of going its own way uh, in many ways, but when it comes to China, they're starting to become a lot more aligned with um, the United States, the rest of these Quad nations, and now it seems to be NATO. Because if, quad, if the Quad really wants to you know, get off the ground and actually produce some type of meaningful value as as sort of a, a pseudo alliance right now of course not anything like nato there's no article five um it's going to need other allies it's going to need um, organizations like nato to help back it up and i think that this does help at least in that regard it starts to steer that ship uh you know in the right direction i agree with you and i the big issue for me coming up on the east asia is whether all these uh, and i like that nato did put out a kind of a framework to get to focus on the uh, I don't want to call it a China problem, but the problem of China's over aggressiveness in the East Asian sphere. But one of the things I'm worried about as well is uh, you mentioned India and India has a separate forum uh, is more than more than happy to go along with the United States when it comes to East Asia and China specifically policy. And then when it comes to Russia, just flips them the bird and walks away and yeah they they kind of do what they want when it and comes a, to russia up until very 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 recently you had several countries in uh nato that were doing the same thing but with china um so i'm thinking of germany and uh the telecom companies and the united states just going don't do this you don't know what type of spyware they're putting into your systems, etc., etc. And it took a very long time for Germany just to finally say, no, you're right, we, we, we might not go that way. And it's getting them to focus again, that urgency. Um, I don't believe that 
many NATO countries will have the kind of urgency to look at China or to try to deal with China outside of an economic sphere. And so, again, that brings me back to my idea of if they don't want to, then focus on Russia and let the United States do it. And the United States and the Quad, especially when I say you let the United States do it, I say I mean that with our allies and partners in the region. Again, I'm worried that there won't be as much focus. And I, I, I guess I actually wonder what you think about that. Yeah, I, I think it is very, obviously time will tell. I, I do think it's really encouraging, like I said, that um, that they're putting this much of a focus on it, that they're saying this much about it, and that they're inviting these other nations to these NATO summits. I think that's a big key and means that it's more than just saying the right things. Hopefully it looks like they are actually starting to to refocus that. At the very least, you know, NATO, of course, doesn't need to like drive international relations in the Asia-Pacific region. I don't think that that's necessarily 100% appropriate for NATO as an alliance. Um, but it can certainly back up these other nations that are there that are actually staring down what China is doing in the region and provide them with resources. And, um, you know, these other countries, too, can be providing their own um, individual help as well. You know, like China or France, Germany, they all have interests that are being um, countered by what China is doing as well. So that makes sense. But um, I guess it just really, you know, it remains to be seen because it's such early stages. But I just, I was very encouraged by the fact that even now with everything that's happening, sure. and you would think it would be 100% Russia. China wouldn't even be mentioned anywhere in that summit. But there it was kind of front and center that everyone was saying, look, we get it. Russia is the short-term problem right now. They're the ones who can destroy things. China is the long-term issue. They can build things. They can build a new international order in their image that is not friendly to any any of us, to any of these nations, that, as you said, is mercantilist. It's, what can you do for China? If you can't do anything, you're out. We don't care about you. And that's not the system that we have in the, this U.S.-led order. You know, of course, we want nations to be friendly with the United States. Generally, we want you all to follow the rules that we have all prescribed forth, mainly don't invade each <laughs> other and take each other's land. Um, but like, if you're not super friendly with the United States, but you still play by the rules, okay, you know, we're not gonna, we may not like you, we may not do deals with you, but like, that's the difference between these two systems of government that we're well, not government, these two systems of, of international cooperation, of international relations that we're, that we're offering here. Yeah, it remains to be seen, but I, I'm somewhat hopeful, at least, that they're saying and doing the things that you'd think they would say and do if they were That's actually That's a good point. And I actually, it. I do kind of agree that a lot of, uh, I, again, I, it's sad to say this, but this has given new life to NATO as well. Um, and this agreement mm -hmm. does show it, or the summit does show it. Um, because NATO for the longest time was just focused on Russia, only focused ever on Russia. And that's what it was built to be. It's no surprise that it was only focused yeah. on Russia. And the fact was that for, I would say in, oh, when was it? I remember thinking, I remember hearing in from like 2008 to 2018, multiple people talking all the time about, well, is NATO even really needed anymore? Do we need anyone to counter Russia? Because mm -hmm. Russia's not even an aggressor state anymore. And sure, now it does it does pop back up as an aggressor state. And uh, 
NATO has a new lend on life for that. But they're also focusing on different issues. They focused a little bit on the Middle East. Um, to what extent and to what, uh, I guess, benefit, that can be debated. But they did. And they also are now focusing on the challenge of China. And that is something that hopefully will keep the NATO countries more united even after hopefully Russia completely loses in Ukraine. Yeah, well, and it's and it's not just China, you know, it's it's these other ancillary issues that are very much tied up with a lot of nations, but with China, especially cybersecurity, you know, competition in space. These are all things that, um, that as, as we've kind of talked about before, they're not necessarily as obvious as rolling tanks into another country. You know, how do we deter these cyber attacks that sometimes you don't even know who did it until weeks after it happened or you don't even know that it happened until months after you look and go oh my god china's hacked our office of personnel management <laughs> and they've to- taken all of our files like how do you deter that when it's already happened and they've already you know moved on to the next thing so you have to kind of go back and and try to either increase your defense which is obviously the first thing you should do but then how do you find that level of deterrence? And it looks like NATO is actually starting to really grapple with that problem in a big way. And it's something that, you know, a lot of nations can do. Russia can do it. Iran can do it. China can do it too. So it's good that they're focusing on all that. And in addition that they're focusing on um, the Arctic as yes. well. Because that is the next true frontier of, of actual potential combat. I mean, naval combat pretty much exclusively, but um, when those ice caps melt and they stay melted, um, that that opens up a dramatic, um, it opens up dramatic shipping lanes for Russia and for China. You know, it cuts the time to um, to European markets by weeks, which even if you can cut a couple days off is, is crazy in international trade, but this would cut weeks off and would open up pretty much the entire northern frontier of Russia to... Um, to be, to be able to be developed for naval it also activity. would uh, end up uh, unfortunately uh, uh, allowing a whole bunch of natural resources which are down under the Arctic for exploration purposes and who gets those uh, and there's going to be a lot of ag- yeah there's a lot of undersea oil and gas just in time for us to be off of oil and gas right that's yeah we gotta gotta switch the world economy real fast to that not just for global you know, for climate change, but also to counter so that Russia doesn't have any market to sell that stuff in in the first place. There is going to be a scramble, and it's not going to be a lawful or legal scramble because you look at the uh, Law of the Seas. UN um, Convention on the Law of the Seas? Yeah, I can't Something remember like exactly it, yeah. what it stands for. Sea but, Law. Yeah, Sea <laughs> Law. <laughs> the United States hasn't agreed to it. Uh, Russia doesn't respect it. China pretends like it doesn't exist. So that all leaves... of this is tracking with what I, <laughs> I already know in international relations, right? And it US just says, means... "Nah." Russia <laughs> says, "Sure, whatever," but we're not going to do it. And China says, "What? What law? We don't. Yeah, there is no law." So what we're going to see is a lot, and uh, obviously you have Canada, Denmark, uh, Norway that have substantial claims out there as well. But you're mm-hmm. going to see things that are like what's happening in the South China Sea with. Uh, countries just building stuff and saying all right well i already have something here if you want really want to get rid of it come take it 
And yeah. that's you're, they're daring you to start a war, and we're going to see a lot of that. Yep, that, that old economic exclusive yeah. economic zone that yes. uh, exploiting exploiting um, international maritime law to basically say, if you have an island and you plant your flag on it, you get everything around that island for a few hundred nautical miles. So, you know what we should have done, yeah. Stephen? What? We should have bought Greenland. Should have bought Greenland. Oh my goodness. I had the chance, right? <laughs> he said we had the chance. I don't know, but I, we did not have a chance. But I thought it was, a, it was funny. I was, it was honestly, That's people sure. made fun of it. If that was a real deal, I'd be legit happy about it. It was definitely not a real deal, and it, he made it sound dumb. But that would have been awesome if we had bought Greenland. I mean, in all like all joking aside, like yeah if you had a chance to purchase the landmass that big and that's strategically important for almost nothing um yeah like go for it mm-hmm. i mean we purchased alaska that's what i was Russia, just thinking of <laughs> and boy that was a good idea yes it was oh it's gonna be it's gonna be unfortunate it's gonna be interesting and one of the things you can actually look at for the uh, arctic race though is the number of icebreakers that every country is building Russia's planning a fleet of 14 new icebreakers. Uh, yeah. China is also planning some new icebreakers, including a nuclear-powered one of their own. It's something the United States is not doing, and we need to get on board with now. And we we need to figure out our kind of issues with uh, Canada as well. Obviously, they're never going to come to something that's actually a huge problem. But the most... Uh, what is it? Disputes in international maritime law, I believe, are between the United States and Canada, if I remember correctly. Hmm. Obviously, we're not going to bomb them, and they're not going to bomb us over it, but we should probably figure them out. I will say, for anyone listening out there, that also means you have an outsized ability at this point in time to play a major role in world affairs. Um, it still might be minuscule and absolutely almost non-existent but compared to what it would be in a different time you have the ability to make it uh, a, a difference here you have the ability to make a change well yeah i mean i think and that's really what drives well really this entire podcast and what you and i do is you know we we understand that we are very privileged in a lot of ways but especially in the way that we live in what is you know the most influential country on the planet probably in human history and we actually have some role to play in steering this ship and saying where should where should it go what should it do you know so many civilizations throughout history um, average people like us they wouldn't they wouldn't care at all what we had to say or they'd kill us for speaking up about yeah. anything at all <laughs> but we actually have the ability to influence this in some way and so we ought to do it to what we believe is you know the good of humanity or at least um making things less awful less crappy than they were before it's true and uh, even if you don't believe that you want to play such a outsize uh you don't want to change the course of countries and whatnot we still even today have the ability to make those small differences you have the ability to support ukrainian refugees by either taking them in or by donating money uh to the cause you have the ability to support uh different I don't know, there are tons and tons of different ventures out there. But you as an individual have the ability that no one else has had in history to be able to go out there and actually support those little things. Um, just go talk to your local uh, NGO 
And I'm sure Nick has a wide list of NGOs and uh, one in specific that could help figure out uh, how to, I guess, how to invest your time if you want to be able to help out. You know, it's it really is about just trying to do to do things better, to just do better in the world. You know, not necessarily even about telling other countries what to do. Um, I guess telling them what not to do, like don't invade people. Don't slaughter your citizens. Um, you know, that's about it. Otherwise, you can kind of, you're free to do you, but um, for the most part, you know, don't invade people, don't slaughter people. That's that's about the basic. If we can all agree to not do that, we'll be in a pretty good spot, I think. And I think that if we all start paying a little bit more attention as well, maybe we will have a little bit less slip-ups by the United States in those regards as well. Because to say the United States is squeaky clean not right to say the united states is the worst offender in the world also not right so you got to find that balance and but you can also just help out with the local government and help out with knowing what your people are doing around the world that's it for this episode of the orientalist express podcast i'd like to once again thank steven for joining the show today thanks of course as always to our listeners and readers of the blog be sure be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com like and share on our Facebook page, or tweet us at Orientalist DXP. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.